Hello and welcome to Keanu Club, like a cool breeze over the mountains. This is episode 69, The Neon Demon from 2016. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And with us today, a very special guest, the guest who was on my biggest pleasant surprise of Keanu Club so far and probably forever, Jordan Paul and Clark. Hello, Jordan. Hello. What was your biggest surprise? I don't know if Mike ranked his Keanu movies, but in my top five Keanu movies, now that I've seen all of them that are out, is Flying. Oh, of course. Of course. Oh, right. (laughs) That's at least in my top seven. Flying is amazing. I have watched Flying again since we watched it for the podcast. Every part of it is really a highlight. (laughs) The reason I bring that up, and not just because it's a wonderful movie that everybody should go back and watch and listen to and just hear Jordan just laugh for, I don't know, probably two hours about hot dogs... (laughs) and she's still laughing about it, is because this movie and the next movie, John Wick Chapter 2, are both in my top six Keanu movies. I mean, this isn't really a Keanu movie, but in terms of how I'm ranking them, these are both in my top six. And like, man, we we struggled through some really dark times in Keanu, but like, we're ending on a really, really high note. Yeah, he, or we, I should say, we have sort of (laughs) maybe suffered a little, but this is a payoff. You know, John Wick... John Wick Chapter 2, this movie, things to come that look real good, The Bad Batch. Yeah, I feel like it's been building to this. Now, we'd all seen this movie before, right? I know I had, I know Mike had, and Jordan, you had too, right? Yeah, I had seen it before, which I'm glad for. It was better the second time. I loved it both times. Did you like it? I mean, so I was sort of worried. I'm worried because this movie, I feel, you can attack as anti-feminist, like anti-women, or very strongly pro-women. And I'm not sure where you're going to fall on that divide. I think it's actually really unclear. And like my first feelings about it when I watched it the first time was that it was boring. Like it was pretty and it was bored. Yeah, I thought like you have to work pretty hard or have seen it once before to see any personality in the characters, I thought. I did not get it the first time. But I think that's kind of intentional, right? But, like, I tried to work hard the first time and didn't get it. So if it's intentional, it wasn't a good choice. Because I'm not the only one who feels that way. Yeah, I I remember watching this the first time, and I just kind of felt like I fell into a trance, to be quite honest. Like, the yeah. movie's very hypnotic, and I was just very into, it's very avant-garde. I, I, it's it's supposed to be a horror film, you know, for the most part. That's what it's billed as, a horror movie, so I was approaching it from that angle, and I did find parts of it quite terrifying. I, I found parts of it utterly baffling and confusing, even the second time around, but, but all around, I, I just enjoyed it every minute both times and it definitely you know repeat viewings definitely help you know if you're trying to construct a narrative out of it i think he gives you just enough for you to imprint what you need to fill out these characters like he'll give you just like a hint of a personality and then i feel like he wants you to fill that in any way you like and that's how he kind of crafted this Uh, that's my perspective yeah so this movie is Written and directed by Nicholas Winding Refn, who directed Drive and Only God Forgives, and a lot of movies in the 90s and 2000s that I haven't seen yet and feel really bad about, like Valhalla and Bronson and Pusher, Pusher 2, Pusher 3, all those movies. So it's a guy who knows what he's doing. I love Drive. 
I think Mike Loves Drive. Then Only God Forgives came out, and I was just like, eh. And I do want to give that movie another chance, and I will, I think, for one or two reasons, I'm going to give it another chance in the coming months. Hint, hint, wink, wink. But this one, I was sort of worried a little bit, but I was just blown away. And then to have Keanu only in three scenes, but to have him be so good in this movie... I, I was I was messaging Mike last night as I was watching this, and I really forgot. Like, I remembered how big and how physical and intimidating he was, and it's the size that, like, we were... I was hoping for... It's not Fat Keanu, by any stretch of the imagination. I'm mean, still keep hoping for Fat Keanu, but it's this villainous powerhouse of a character that we'd sort of seen a little bit in the, you know, Chain Reaction, The Gift, The Watcher, those kind of films. But lately, he's been a villain a little bit more in here. I mean, he's full-blown terrifying. Yeah, that was one of my questions for you guys, actually, because I've never seen him in anything where he was, like, the bad guy. Like, he's really nasty in this. He's mean. He's vulgar. He's, like, physically really scary. And I've never seen him be like that before. Yeah, he's he's attempted it a few times to sort of go bad, uh, play against his type, right? I mean, he's mostly playing good guys, hero cops, stoner dudes, the ideal man in a lot of later films. And going bad has not really gone well for him in the past. I, I feel, I, and I, I feel like it should have. I feel like he's got it in him somewhere. And here's where it came out in full force. Uh, I am terrified of him in this movie. This, you know, there's very little dialogue in the movie and he seems to have most of it. And it's all just like crazy talk and scary words and, and like double entendres that are just like gross and creepy and yeah he is a very imposing presence you get his sense of you know how much space he occupies his his introduction is just his voice in shadow behind a door and it's like don't show me what's behind that door i don't don't want to see what you know who belongs to that voice and yeah it's it's great. You know, Refn just got it. Like, he just he just seems to know exactly what to do to get this performance out of him, and it's awesome. So when I first saw this movie, this is where I'll tell my little story that just makes me so happy thinking about it again. When I first saw this movie, I was living in Austin, and there was an advanced screening with Nicholas Winding Refn, with Cliff Martinez, the composer, and it was hosted and moderated a Q&A by Tim League, the founder and CEO of the Draft House. And so, you know, they introed the movie. They said, I hope you like it. At the end, we'll take a Q&A. And then at the end, Tim League was just like, I have two copies of the vinyl soundtrack that I'm going to give out to whoever asks my favorite questions or the best questions or whatever. So people were asking about the movie. People were asking about, you know, sort of how it relates to his other movies. People were asking about the visual style, whatever. And no one was asking about Keanu. And this was in June of last year, I think. So we had been a couple months into Keanu. So I had Keanu on the brain. And I raised my hand and I was just like, hey, I just want to know, why is Keanu, like, how did he get involved in this movie? And Tim League is like, thank you. Finally, someone asked the question that I want to know. And Nicholas Winding Refn sort of smiles and he says that he was supposed to do this, like, big budget movie with Keanu that fell through. And so he had met him, talked to him, they liked each other, whatever. And then when he moved to L.A., this is like the second movie I think he made in L.A., he and his wife were just, you know, I guess they were working on the movie or whatever. And I think she suggests that Keanu should be in this role. So he called Keanu up and he was between projects or whatever. So he came on set. I think he was only on set for like three days or something. But my favorite part of the story is that the entire time that Keanu was on set, Nicholas Winding 
Stephen Reffin was just quoting John Wick to him and telling him how much he loved John Wick and just like this really like gushing film nerd and it just made me so happy and then because the question like was exactly what Tim League wanted to hear he gave me the vinyl soundtrack for free and I got it signed by the two of them and it was great but I just love that you know I feel like Nicholas Winding Reffin to bring it back to where we started this from he's able to get it out of Keanu get this performance out because he knows him he sort of likes him and likes his work and just sort of I think understands exactly what he wants from his actors and is able to draw that out not only from him but like Elle Fanning was goddamn born to be in this movie like she's so good in this movie and I think like both of them and across the board he's just able to get what he needs from these guys yeah I uh, I love all of his movies I think that he's just a really great director like everybody is killing it in this movie uh no pun intended but uh i think the girls in this are are amazing you know like they are also very intimidating and scary and vulnerable at times right like i don't know it's like an intensity and a subtlety that combines this film and their performances just flourish like it's just so interesting to watch I think Jenna Malone has the best performance in the movie. I think subtle is a really good way to describe all of the performances, but she, like, to, to <laughs> I'm just I'm just laughing because of the one Jenna Malone scene that, like, is the, I mean, a, a, several of her scenes are the opposite of subtle, but I, I agree with you. I'm just laughing at, like, the length to which she goes. Well, like, like what she does isn't subtle, but the way right. it's acted is, and, like, her face never changes, you know? I mean, nobody's face ever changes in this movie, but... Yeah, she just does a bunch of the weirdest stuff. And because a lot of the gaps of like who these characters are are not filled in, to me, she's the biggest mystery. To me, she's the one that I look at and I'm like, why is she doing any of this? <laughs> like, is do you th- like, is she immortal? Do you think she's immortal? She might be. She could be. I mean, if you told me that, I'd say sure. Well, I feel like there's this whole other way to read this film that's implied. Like, watching it is is telling you one thing, but I also feel like there's a deeper layer to it that you're supposed to be talking about afterwards. Like, are they a coven? Is this a cult? Are they supernatural? Like, none of these questions are really presented, necessarily. I mean, there's hints and, you know, weird shit's going on, you know, they're eating people, you know, to one degree, you know, and and the way I like to interpret it is sort of like they ate her to gain her attraction, right? Like to use her power. And so I, I like to read this as, yeah, you know, I'm going full witch with it. Like I kind of expected a, a black goat to walk across the screen at one point. It would not have been out of place for me. I wish that was pumped up a little bit more, but I understand what he's trying to do here. It's not that type of movie. This is more of an installation at times than like, you know, your average film. Yeah. I think this might be one of the closest things to, like, a David Lynch film that we've gotten from anybody who's not David Lynch. And I don't know if he's trying for that, but I feel like in terms of the style... So I feel the same way, and it's like... I think it has a lot of differences than a Lynch movie, but I think it has a lot of similarities, too. And one of the biggest things for me is this, like, feeling that it makes you have that you're, like, not anywhere real. And that's how it makes me feel anyway. Like, yeah, we know they're in L.A., but, like, I just can't quite place this in real life, if that makes any sense, the way I could with, like, most movies. And I was reading some reviews of this, and one of the words that someone used that I really liked was the word depopulated. And that's what part of it is for me, is like, it just looks empty. Well, I was just thinking that as you were saying that, there's a lot of the scenes we see are inside, but 
there's the one scene in particular that I'm thinking of when her boyfriend or whatever that guy is, I, I don't know, you know, guy she's dating or whatever, picks her up for the first time and they leave and there's just like nobody on the street. Yeah. And I'm like, where in LA is there just no cars? Like there's cars parked, but nobody's driving, nobody's walking. There might be, I mean, I'm sure that there are extras and stuff in this movie, but there might be like Barely. 40 people in total. And it's just like models that a lot of them don't say anything. They're just around. It's really funny because the movie is all about drawing attention to yourself, right? Like being looked at by people and yet this world is not populated with very many people. So it's very strange, like sort of contrast between theme and what we're seeing. And I think he's great at that. Like he definitely shows more than he tells and he wants you to, you know, work it out a little more if you can yourself. And I think, yeah, that the lynchness or the lynching quality I also get is the sort of dreamlike alien world. Like this isn't exactly our earth maybe it's just like a parallel earth and it's a good uh, metaphor also for this sort of glamour model world that is exclusive and is very competitive and it's a small circle it seems like this you know at least this movie tries to convey like they use the same girls a lot and it's a very sort of tight-knit group and for this interloper to come in there and sort of shake things up is like an earthquake it's very groundbreaking for them but yeah that that is all working for me. I like that about it. It gives it more of an eerie quality and it, and it makes me more tense throughout. Even when times are sort of, you know, more normal, I still feel on edge. Well, I think a lot of what you said goes exactly with what Winding Refn wanted to do because he, he said that the movie felt alien to him, which is why he sort of wanted it to end the way that it ended. And I feel like you're right. Like, it might be another Earth everything sort of feels a little bit off or if it's actually the world we know this girl is sort of an alien or the world around her is an alien you know what i mean it's sort of like this external being dropped into this world that just sort of like you said shakes everything up and then they have to get rid of her because she's too powerful or too beautiful or whatever do you think that the world were being shown so when we watch this we are you know, Elle Fanning is our protagonist. We're with her. She's kind of like the good guy, for lack of a better word. She's innocent, whatever, and they're going after her. And there's a certain point in the movie where she kind of turns a little bit, where she's like, yeah, I'm as amazing as everybody thinks I am. And she kind <laughs> yep. of starts to go over to the dark side. And, like, I get that, like, yes, she's come into the world of these three women um, and of this one photographer and kind of messed with their world. But, like, it occurred to me while watching this that, like, all of this could be very internal to those, like, five people. Do you know what I mean? Like, because the movie is so empty, let's say it's not in another reality. Let's say it is in our reality. Maybe at a certain point when she starts to go bad, we're going way inside her head and her paranoia and all that is about her changing. Does that make any sense at all? Well, yeah, because, like, everybody is the star of their own movie, right? right. And so... When Abby Lee or whoever loses out her modeling gig to this new girl, it's the end of the world. That she's now suddenly washed up, everything she knew is upside down, and something has to be done. Yeah, and I also feel like when she goes down the runway, right, like her big break, she's going to close the show. She goes down the runway one person, and she definitely comes back up the runway a different person a changed person you know she sees the glowing triangle it changes color she she sort of walks through you know a metaphorical door to opening up some kind of third eye or something inside of her awakens and yeah i think you're right she starts to 
believe her own hype and think that her shit don't stink. And, you know, we're forgetting also to mention that she's only 16. <laughs> like, like Keanu says, some real Lolita shit going on uh, in this movie. <laughs> and I think that plays into it a lot, too. Like, she's really, she may look ready for this, but she's not grown up. She's not ready for you know, the cutthroat world of a supermodeling in LA. Um, like, these girls are vicious. So you have to really be ready to fight for your life to maintain your position and your power. Because these girls have, you know, I, I'm, she's not the first to go down, is what I'm thinking. Like, they have run into things like this before, but maybe not so strong. And so that's why they don't all necessarily come out the other end together. You know, not all of them really even survive this encounter. I also want to point out that not only is the character 16, but Elle Fanning was 16 when she shot this no movie. Way. So like, yeah. Oh, so man. that's crazy. But I, I agree that I think that in the world that this is in, Jenna Malone and one of the two models had done this before and the other one who who says at the end i need to get her out of me and then cuts her stomach she will first barfs up the eyeball and then cuts her stomach open and kills herself i think that's probably her first time but i can sort of see this as like a i'm sure it's happened in a lot of movies the most recent one that i saw was sleepwalkers that stephen king movie about the cats where they sort of have to like prey on young virgins to absorb their powers and stay young and stay living forever so i think that is true but I also don't know, and I think that, you know, it doesn't matter what the reality is. Like, they might just be crazy, crazy women who like to bathe in blood and, like, you know, kill things that are beautiful, and that having that obstacle out of their way gives them the strength and the willpower and the confidence to get back on top of the modeling world. That's interesting to think about, like, maybe that girl can't deal with it because it was her first time. I didn't think about it that way. I saw it like Elle Fanning gets to win at the end because she's so powerful that she actually just like kills oh, that girl from great. the inside. Oh, I like that better. Yeah. <laughs> the way I was reading it was she was the one girl who was cut, right? Like, so she had manufactured beauty. She had done all of this plastic surgery to get the way she looked and the other girl was all natural and so the way I saw it was because her beauty wasn't natural she couldn't ingest the natural beauty of Elle Fanning and, and maintain that inside of her and so the realness was killing her and she had to like cut herself to get it out. That would make sense with the uh, like the speech that the fashion designer gives where they're like at that restaurant yep. because he talks about how like you can't manufacture beauty like everybody knows it's not If you're not, not born real. beautiful you'll never be beautiful. Yeah he also said one of my favorite things in the movie in that part. He said, there's a guy named Dean who introduces himself. He says, wait, I'm not going to get through it if you start laughing. Sorry. Um, Elle Fanning brings her like kind of boyfriend right. in and his name is Dean. And she said, this is my friend Dean. And he says, your name's Bean? Fly <laughs> through the portage of the head like Bye. a brass cannon. I want you to meet my friend. This is Dean. Hi. Your name is Bean? No, Dean. Dean. Dean, yeah. Dean, nice to meet you. And, like, I don't, I, I don't know if that's, like, just a dick power move or, like, he's just so not interested. But, like, the way he delivers that line, it's just the best. Because it's, no, his name is not Bean. Oh, man. There is a couple of really funny lines in this movie that I don't remember hearing the first time. Like, when they're out, Jenna Malone and the two models are out at a restaurant. 
And the waitress comes up and asks if they want to hear the specials. And the one model says, yeah. And Jenna Malone looks at her and she's like, wow, you're not going to eat anything anyway. And she said, oh, but they work so hard to memorize them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Makes it read the specials. I thought that was funny. And then she not only makes the waitress read them, but also asks about substitutions. (laughs) Like, if I don't want the french fries, can I substitute the fruit cup? (laughs) And then she just ends up ordering the fruit cup. Yep. (laughs) I thought, like, like, there was one more. Oh, the other line that made me laugh was um, when Keanu Reeves is, is, there's like one time in the movie where he's yelling. I don't know what, what he's yelling about, but he says, room 214, gotta be seen. That also yep, really yeah. made me laugh. Is there a pharmacy around here? Why? She sent you out for tampons too? You know, you got a real attitude problem, you know that? I'm just being friendly. Just want to make sure you're getting something out of this deal. Because if you're not... Got plenty of the girls here. Take a peek in room 214 if you get a chance. Rented this week to a girl from Sandusky, Ohio. Runaway. 13 years old. Real Lolita shit. Real Lolita shit. Room 214. Gotta be seen. Well, that's that's the real that's some real Lolita shit. Room fourteen, gotta be seen. Apparently, there's even younger girls than Elle Fanning staying at. Yeah, the Lolita yeah, girl is thirteen. Thirteen-year-old oh from Ohio. So okay, so Elle Fanning's boyfriend. What's crazy to me, aside from the fact that like he's just he's a genuinely like he feels boring, but I think that's just because he's a genuinely nice guy, completely out of his element across the board. No, I kind of think it's because that guy's not a good actor. Have you? Did you guys see him in Love? So, no, I didn't see Love yet, but, so here's the thing with that guy, is that they apparently had a really tough time casting that role, because so many dudes came in and tried to be Ryan Gosling, and Nicholas Winding Refn was just like, no, that's whatever. And then Gaspar No, who did Love, said, you should try this guy, and he found him. Oh, I thought they should have gotten the guy from Mr. Robot. I really like him, and this guy looked kind of oh, like a yeah. better-looking version of him, but I was like, I would substitute the looks for the ability and get that guy in to play this role. I feel like he's just too big for that like, small part. Possibly, but you got Keanu in tiny roles. I could see him just being too busy with the television show. But what's interesting about that character is he's the only one who realizes that their world is bullshit. Like, he's, I think he's the photographer who's taking the pictures that the movie opens with, with her all bloodied on the couch. So the dude has skill and talents. It, it looks like he does, but Christina Hendricks shits all over well, him. yeah, but, you know... Amateur she, hour. She's seen everything. Like, she's talking about elite. He might be amateur and out of his league, but he's the only one that understands really what's going on in the grander scheme of things. Like, he doesn't need to be associated with these people in order to either improve his career or, you know, feel better about himself or any of that kind of stuff. No, but he still wants in on it, though, because when she came back from the Christina Hendricks meeting, he was like... Did they say anything about my pictures? Like, I agree that, like, he has some kind of moral compass that the other people don't have. But, like, even when he walks out of that restaurant because they're treating him like dirt and they're treating that girl like dirt, he still goes back to her motel room. The only moment that really sort of hit me hardest with that character was when he finds out she's 16. He backs off as far as his sort of, you know, sexual advances. He, he at that point, I don't feel like he ever 
puts on any moves to her, he kind of feels more like a brother or, or some kind of guy trying to No way. He to tries to degree. kiss her right after that. Did he? Oh, man. I, I think it's kind of a joke. <laughs> I'm trying to work because he's like, feels like the only good guy. And it's like a trick, well, you know? Like, I'm he being, is. Yeah, but it's all right. still a trick. I'm just being tricked. Like, I'm not right. <laughs> She says that she's 16, and then he sort of like, sh- like you know, shrinks away a little bit. But then she like grabs him. He's like so, he's like right back on board. Okay. Like I think it was kind of like a, I sort of have the feeling like this is not right, but like she's into it, so it's gonna be fine. Yeah, because I was gonna say ultimately he does keep hanging around a 16 year old girl instead of like trying to contact her parents or something. Another knock against him is that he can't get the upper hand against Keanu. That. First, the reason we meet Keanu is because Elle Fanning comes back from a date and there's a mountain lion in her room, which is a metaphor for so many things. And then later in the movie, when he comes back again, Keanu's talking about how, like, she owes him money for the door and this guy has to give him the money. But also at the same time, like, this actor is taller than Keanu. But if you see, like, Keanu just barrels out of that door and this guy, like, it looks like he's three feet tall. Like, he just, he's so tiny and he's just terrified of Keanu, like, rightfully so. But, like, I'm looking at him and Keanu is looking up to this kid, like, looking, like, head tilted back, looking up, and he just has all of the power and this kid is i mean i don't know if he's 18 19 20 whatever he is they might even say his age in the beginning but like he's just he's just a kid at this point are you the manager depends who's asking my friend says she owes you some money room 212 oh the wildcat that's some real hard candy know what i mean beg your pardon what are you, a Mormon? No, sir. You're the DPH? No. Because we passed our last inspection. I can show you the paperwork if you want. She said she owes you for the damages? I should charge her for emotional distress. You know how long it took to get that thing out of here? Well, I don't think she should have to pay. That's so. Yeah, I mean, te- technically it wasn't her fault. Not her fault. Who do you think left the sliding door open? Yeah, but I don't see how that makes sense. Was it you? No. Sure as hell wasn't me. How much? New door, plus labor, at least a hundred. Or was it two? I have 140 in cash. Sold. Yeah, yeah, and Keanu even goes a step further when he starts talking about the other girl in the room and all those, all that kind of talk where he's like, you're just hanging around because you know you want a piece of that. And it, yeah, it does all the mind games on top of the uh, presence as well. Like, he's pulling it all off. Do you know what's weird about him, too? I know I keep talking shit about him, and I do, I, I swear I agree that he's probably the best person in the movie, but, like, he keeps... He also keeps telling Elle Fanning, like, oh, you're more than just a pretty face. But he never, they never talk about anything. (laughs) Like, he never asks her about herself or anything like that. Like, he just wants to be seen with her. I mean, he does take care of her a little, like, when she has that big cut on her hand and he pays Keanu the money. But it's still, like, really superficial. I also wonder how long they've been together before the movie started. I'm guessing not long. I get the feeling like anytime a, 
older guy is hanging out with like a 15 or 16 year old there's like something up there right like so I feel like he maybe sees her as like his way in and she's just like so young and like dumb that she doesn't know to that it's like kind of not cool to be with this like you know 20 21 year old guy and he just can't do that with some model his own age yeah i i saw her as naive and i took her word for it when she says that he found her online and you know said i could take your pictures for you and that they sort of became boyfriend girlfriend for the you know a little while like whatever they've met i mean maybe that means they made out or whatever she's just trying to say i'm not single but there's something definitely, you know, now that I think about it, like, it's possible that he could definitely be using her as well to gain a foothold somewhere. So can we talk about what might be the scariest scene in the movie? But it turns out to not even be real. But it also makes you question whether any of this is real. It's the scene where Keanu, like a mountain lion, enters Elle Fanning's room and sticks a knife into her mouth while she's sleeping and then says wider and like keeps forcing it down and then finally she wakes up and locks her door and then Keanu tries to I guess Keanu probably Keanu we don't know for sure but probably tries to break in I guess to rape her the door is locked so then he goes and rapes the 13 year old like that is horrifying on so many levels yeah, it's like Eli Roth can eat his heart out because, you know, a couple movies ago we watched Knock Knock and all I could keep thinking about is like, man, like this is fear. Like this is ha- this is fright. Like to me, this is all you need to do. Just thinking about it, like I had my hands over my mouth the entire time. It's super effective and super scary and really gross. I thought it was a nightmare that she was having though. It was, but she wakes up and locks the door. No, yeah, but still, it's terrifying. I would have to watch this movie, like, ten more times to have an actual opinion about, like, gender and all that stuff in it. But, um, something that I picked up on was that the men are the ones who seem really scary in this movie, and they are. They're all, like, super threatening. They obviously have the power, and the women don't. But in the end, it's the women who hurt her. It's not the men. I wrote down that the reason she died is because she left Keanu to go live with Jenna Malone. Yeah, it's because she trusted the women. Yeah, that begins her downfall. I mean, like, neither situation was good, and she probably should have just left L.A., but she's, (laughs) you know, power-hungry and just glamorous or whatever. But, like, because she leaves that shitty, dumpy, shady motel and goes to stay with Jenna Malone, who's living there or house-sitting or whatever. Do you think she ate the person whose house that is? That's kind of what I think. Either that or, like Joey said earlier, she's super old and she's always lived there. Oh, yeah, right. Okay, yeah, I could see that, too. It's just old Hollywood. Yeah. I definitely got a sense at one point in the film, though, that maybe I like to think that they were maybe targeting her from the start in a way. At least Jenna Malone, Jenna Maloney had a, it seemed like she had an agenda to get into her pants, right? Like she is, we find out she's sexually attracted to her, but Elle Fanning is, isn't, which kind of surprised me because of that Keanu dream. Like I took the knife in her mouth to be, you know, she doesn't like to give head or like she doesn't want a dick in her mouth or anything like that, right? I don't know. That's, that's that's what I got out of it, and that maybe she was, or she just doesn't her. want his in her mouth, or his, yeah, I mean that could, it could be that simple, just not his. But when she goes to 
the girl's house, I thought like, okay, like I thought that that where it was going. And then when she denies her advances, it's like, okay, that was like the third strike. You take the two jobs away from the actual models and then you, you know, you humiliate the makeup artist and make her feel like totally rejected. Like, you know, she has to go down now. Her days are definitely numbered. On a side note, while we're talking about Jenna Malone being a lesbian in movies, there's a movie that came out this year called Love Song, which is on Netflix now, which is Jenna Malone and Riley Keough, which has a Cage Club connection, sort of, even though we didn't talk about this movie. She's the she's one of the stars of American Honey. She's Elvis's granddaughter. She and Jenna Malone play lesbians, sort of. They have a they have a they're old friends who sort of have like a, a relationship of sorts in Love Song. And so that movie is wonderful. I love that movie. I love this movie. So Jenna Malone can do no wrong as far as I'm concerned. And Riley Kio is just also amazing. So, side note, if you want to see a happier but also kind of sad lesbian relationship, go see that movie. Anyway, back to Kio. I, I agree with Mike, though, that I think, like, from the very first time seen, like, in the beginning when they were all in the bathroom together, I think they were interviewing her. Because mm. they were just like, oh, is that your natural hair color? Your skin is so clear. They were just, like, obsessing over her. That was an I interview. I heard your parents are dead. Yeah. Like, that yeah, was you, so cool. They were like, do you have any other family? Do you have a boyfriend? They were making sure no one was going to come after her. Mm. And then there was that one line, if you've seen it before, this line to me stuck out very hard, where I think Jenna Maloney goes, like, isn't she delicious, or don't you just want to have her for dinner? And the other one goes, nah, too sweet, more like dessert. And you're like, oh, they are going to eat her. Oh, so that's right, because sort of like they're talking about... They're talking about lipstick colors, and they're talking about how lipsticks are either named after sex or food. So they're all going around being like, which one are you? And they get to Fanning, and she's like, I don't know. And one of them says she, it has to be food because she's sweet, like dessert or something. God, I love this color on me. Red rum. What? That's what it's called. They say women are more likely to buy a lipstick if it's named after food or sex. Just think about it. Black honey, plum passion, peachy keen, pink pussy. <laughs> what about you, Sarah? What would your lipstick be called? Fuck off. Act. What about you? What about me? Are you food? Or are you sex? She's dessert. Because she's so sweet. That's some good foreshadowing upon second viewing. <laughs> there, yeah, that's, I mean, I, there was a lot of that in the beginning, like a lot of foreshadowing that I did. Like one of the lipstick colors was named Red Rum. <laughs> I didn't catch there's, any there's of that a, the there's first There's a handful time. of Shining references in this, including that one. What also is really great about this movie is that you know, I mean, if you've seen this movie before, you know that they're going to attack and kill and eat her. But when they actually attack her in the house, I was still caught off guard. Yes. Like, it's so sudden and so well put together that I was like, oh, that's happening now. I forgot. Okay, yeah. Like, all right. Like, we're here at the end. Yeah, the movie earns it. It builds to it. Like, the way that it's sort of hypnotic and slow and, and just intriguing, I feel like when the attack happens, it's savage. It's like pure primal fear and instinct and, and just brutality. And, and you know, you you couldn't do a whole movie like that but this small 
burst of action is so effective. It just, it, it's like the payoff for me in a lot of ways. It's just like, it's great. Yeah, because like at least 25% of the movie is literally in slow motion. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, so you're seeing these models and they're like slow and like picturesque. And then all of a sudden in this scene, they are running as fast as they can, which is like shocking because we've never seen them move that fast before. And there's something really unsettling about people running at top speed. Like, he, it, <laughs> Even if you just watched like Get Out and you you know see the commercial, there's a yeah. guy just running at top speed towards the camera, and you're just like, oh, stop, stop! It's scary. <laughs> <laughs> One little bit of trivia. This might be my favorite bit of trivia about any movie that we've ever done or that I've that I've ever seen on IMDb that fits in perfectly with this. Was that on set instead of Nicholas Winding Reference shouting action to set things in motion, he would yell violence, motherfuckers, <laughs> and they would go, which is so him. And also perfect for this movie. Like, I, I don't know. I just, I smiled and I laughed when I read it. Like, it's just, it's so stupid, but also just so great. I feel like I give him a hard time, even though I love all of his movies and stuff. I always sort of refer to him as being like a pretentious, Euro trashy kind of guy from Denmark. Is he da- Danish, right? He's, he's, I think so, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and to hear these things, you know, about him being just like such a fanboy of Keanu and yelling, you know, violence motherfucker instead of action, like finding out that he's not so prim and proper on set and he's more loose and jokes around and is just like a really like cooler guy. Like, I feel kind of bad. Like, I feel like my perspective of him is shifting more behind the scenes. Uh, I, I mean, I always are, am going to love his work, so that's that's not going to change anything but it's just kind of interesting to find out these things about something like you think you know someone through the media you read about them and then you come to find out like oh there's like this other side to him well they made that documentary like his wife made that documentary about him which is sort of illuminating but i actually have another nicholas winding reference story the other time that i met him he was at fantastic fest and he had put out this book called the act of seeing and so not only is he a huge fan of like I mean, obviously, of Keanu and these kind of movies, but he loves old, like, 60s and 70s sort of grindhouse and exploitation and stuff like that. And at Fantastic Fest, not this past year, I think, but the year before, he was there and he hosted a few different movies, none of his, but, like, old stuff. And he did Q&A about it. But, like, I saw this one movie called Goodbye, Uncle Tom or Farewell, Uncle Tom or something, which is one of the most, like, graphic horrifying movies about slavery I've ever seen. And so, like, I feel like he just loves... Like, I don't know that pretentious is the right word. I think he sort of gives off that vibe. But I think he just, like, loves movies and loves, like, weird, obscure shit. Like, there's this movie called The Astrologer, which he presented, that I still can't find. Like, it just doesn't exist. That, like, there's these movies that, like, he has this connection to. And he put out a whole book about, like, these, like, weird movies that you've never heard of that you would just love. Like, if you love him and his aesthetic, you'll probably love these because like these kind of inspired him. And so I think that he, I do feel like he has this sort of cold, because his movies give off this cold demeanor, right? Like everybody's sort of distant and it's violent and it's aggressive and it's something that you don't feel comfortable watching. But at the same time, like I think once you get past that, you just see a guy who's actually like super passionate and super, you know, into what he's doing. And like, he's a, he's a really nice guy in person and like really giving with his time. And just, I think I I agree with you, but I, I, I sort of want to break people or break that in my, in my little world, in my little way, break that description of him. I think it's working. It's working on me. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Mission accomplished. He recorded a commentary for this movie with, 
Elle Fanning, which I really want to listen to, which I did not hear. But that's the first time she ever did a commentary. So I think that'd be really interesting. I think it's just the two of them alone to hear them talk about this movie. Yeah, I actually I, I want to just quickly admit now, like, I kind of feel bad that I haven't had time to listen to any of the commentaries for Keanu Club, because I went back looking in the stack of DVDs, and he did a commentary for Man of Tai Chi with, with Tiger, Ooh, uh, which would have oh. been awesome to listen to for that episode. But along the way, he's done a lot of, com- there's been a lot of commentaries, whether he's been on them or not. So, yeah, you know, that was just my little um, public apology for not having enough time to listen to every single commentary. I think as an addendum to the vow that you and me and Tobin swore about not watching bad movies, I think that we should sort of addend that. Like, I would rather, I mean, in theory now, but I, once I get back in front of the TV, like, it's a different story, but, like, I'd rather rewatch this movie with the commentary than watch some movie like the movie I watched today, which is just not very good. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I'd rather learn more and go deeper into the movies that I love than just sort of take a chance on something that's probably not very good. Here, here. Did you guys know? So I want to get your take on this, Jordan. Originally, this movie was going to be called I Walk with the Dead and was going to star Carrie Mulligan. Do you think that would have been good? Because I can see her in this, but I can't I can't distance myself from the Elle Fanning role. But like, do you think she would have been good in this? Yeah, I think she has a similarly. I mean, maybe just because I've seen her directed by Ruffin before, she has a right. similar blank look, or she she's able to do that similar blank look on her face, and she's really pretty. I think they could have done her up to look, you know, innocent. I think she, no matter what you do, she looks older than Elle Fanning does, which would change it a little bit because she's not sixteen and. What did you say they were going to call it? I Walk With the Dead. That's like a spoiler, which like part of the fun of this movie is that like you don't know what's going to happen at the crazy end. So I like that it has kind of this title that doesn't mean anything. Yeah, I have a title for it that completely gives it away but would look great on a poster, which would be Cannibalistic Glamour Girls from L.A. <laughs> totally spoils I'd watch that. the plot, but Roger Corman might buy that if you show him a poster. I have a question for you guys. Yep. Because there's like two pieces of symbolism in this movie that I just like straight up don't understand. Um, <laughs> one one is the triangle. Like, what is the triangle? I don't get oh, it. Oh, he, he answered this. It was something, it was just like a beautiful image and like three sides of things. There's the three girls and it just, I mean, it means what you think it means. Like, there's not like more to it than that, but it's just this striking image that is about, you know, three is sort of like this holy number. I mean, you can listen back to the Matrix episodes where I'm sure, you know, John Brooks talked about the number three a lot of times, right? So it's it's got this historic connotation and, you know, it's the three girls and just she sort of disrupts that triangle and so on and so forth. I can get on board with that, but I feel like it wasn't, like, used enough times or in a good enough context. You know, like, if you're going to just throw in a weird geometric symbol, do it a lot. Or have it, like, be just a little bit more attached to something based in reality. It just, like, floats around in the movie, like, two or three times. Like, and very close together, too. Like, it's not like it, like, appears several times evenly spaced throughout the movie. It felt almost, like, in my face, this triangle, and then totally thrown away and forgotten about. 
Yeah, I feel like it's the most surreal and obscure part of the film because it is just this symbol that flashes up on the screen. But there are also times where she's like walking out of giant triangles, like on the runway, and sometimes it's blue and sometimes it's red. I, I mean, maybe because the movie is so sexually charged, I thought the triangle was like vagina and it was girl power yeah. and transformative, and she was sort of embracing her powers and coming out the other end, like as a woman. And but you know, definitely the second time around like all the sexual imagery was just like hitting me like a freight train i think it's that too i think i remember him saying something about that too i mean like there's no wrong way to read it but that definitely feels like a good way to read it what was the other thing jordan uh the lion i like can't say i understand the lion so Hmm. i think the whole thing is like everybody's like i think that it's everybody's sort of a mountain lion that like she's this silent killer who sort of sneaks up from nowhere and takes out the modeling world and Keanu in that tracking shot in the dream is sort of mountain lion-esque. I think it's just an actual predator in a world filled with human predators. I think that's all it means. I just don't know how it got in. But she left the window open. She left the door open. (laughs) Or something, yeah. But yeah, but I mean, come on. I like that, though, the symbolic contrast of, like, here is an actual animal kingdom predator from the real world out there in the jungle, and, like, it can tear things apart and eat you alive, and yet it's going to be another human that sort of acts like the apex predator, and, you know, they're jockeying for the position of the concrete jungle instead. And at one point, I almost wondered, because later in the film, when we're waltzing around the mansion with Jenna, and she's showing her, like, the rooms and everything, there's a stuffed leopard... Uh, like a taxidermied leopard up on the wall somewhere. So I was like, "Is was that like her familiar or like her, you know, like her little black cat Whoa. or something? Was something like that going on? Or was it just also maybe like everything is attracted to Elle Fanning? So like this creature picked up her scent and just had to find out where it was coming from and led her to this hotel room. Like there's all these cool reasons it could be. Because it doesn't seem particularly like vicious. I mean, it's not. It's certainly not friendly. But it's not like it just sort of sort of, sort of seems to be like waiting for her. Like, hey, let's hang out. <laughs> I also like Keanu and the other guy who like go to open the door because she goes and runs for help. To me, their reactions are very Lynchian. Like, it's like a very Lynch thing to me when like somebody has like. A reaction that's like totally not what you expected it to be to the point where it's like upsetting like you're like why is that what you're doing right now <laughs> like, like that's kind of what they were like about this lion although I was thinking about it just now and it could also be that like Keanu is just this guy who's like seen so many things that he's not even phased by a lion yeah something's in my room what do you mean something's in your room I saw something in my room Are you high? What are you doing? Calling the police. Relax, okay? Mikey. Yeah? This lady has an unwanted guest. 212. Party's over. Open up. Give me the key. Mikey, open the door. The fuck? You're paying for this. 
didn't do it. You fucking kids are all the fucking same. I will find you. Got it? There's your visitor. I also do like that his little sidekick there is the one with the baseball bat or whatever he has. Like, he doesn't even have to carry a weapon. Like, he's just so confident. Like, <laughs> yeah. he's seen everything. He's seen mountain lions before. He's like, I don't need to deal with this. Mikey or Nikki or whatever his name is, just go deal with this. Like, he's madder about the door than he is about the lion. Like, has any feelings about the lion in the room. I sort of ran out of notes. I have a few more bits of trivia. I think I, I have one trivia. Maybe you could confirm this or not, because I don't I don't know if this is true, but I just, just looking at her, was one of the girls in Fury Road... The, yeah. Uh, okay, that is her. Okay. Abby Lee. All right. So she she was in Fury Road. She's also been in a couple other things lately. She also is an actual model, like a you know a runway model that served as an unofficial advisor to this movie and sort of told Refin how casting calls or whatever they whatever that's called where they're in that room and like the guy picks Elle Fanning, oh, like yeah. what they would be doing, what would be on the table. She taught Elle Fanning how to walk down the catwalk. So like she was in this, and I think she's good in this for not being like you know an actress with a lot of history. You I mean, she sort of has to just be a model, but she's she's cruel and vicious, and it's, it works. But she also had this sort of more important role. So yeah, she was one of the what are they called in in Fury Road? She's one of the pregnant. She's one of the pregnant women. She's one of his wives, preciouses or something. <laughs> she's the one that looks like more albino esque. Yep. So that was one thing. Jordan's favorite line, or one of her favorite lines in the movie, "Room two fourteen, got to be seen." That was improvised by Keanu on set. So well, maybe that's why I like it so much. You could just tell. Maybe there was a lot of this that seemed sort of improvised. There were a couple of different instances. That was the only one that I I saved because it was Keanu. Apparently, the ending—I don't know how much of the ending—but the ending was improvised and sort of constructed on set. So I think they sort of, you know, made this movie and didn't quite know where it was going to lead. Because they also shot this movie in order, which is unusual. And so they all got to the end together and sort of figured out, hey, this is where we could end up. I really like the way the ending plays out. I feel like it's like the natural progression of the story. It feels like they they were like almost listening and tuning in to what they've done so far and where would this go as opposed to like, what do we want it to go? Like, where would it actually go? And I think that's why it's so sort of bizarre too, you know, and weird and, and just like abrupt. But I, I love the implication because the one model who's doing the gig gets fired and then the other girl who's just sitting there who ate Elle Fanning gets hired and you it's like oh it's working uh, <laughs> and then the other girl who ate Elfan and gets sick and tries to open up her own herself and get the thing out and at the end it's just you know the last girl standing I just thought that was really well played out the way they did it another surprising bit of trivia is that Nicholas Winding Refn is colorblind no which, way. given his mastery of color wow. especially in this movie That's like he can insane. sort of see he can see some kind of difference between certain things like he's not like red green colorblind but he's just like let me actually get this exactly wording right hold on do you think him being colorblind would actually be why his movies look the way that they do maybe it could be that like he has to go yeah. really crazy to make sure I that mean he they're can... really red there's a really famous cinematographer Haxel Wexler and he was colorblind and his films are gorgeous Gorgeous, and he had always been sort of regarded as a master of playing with light and color. And so maybe there's something to being colorblind and being a good filmmaker. So he's colorblind that can only perceive contrast and primary colors. So I guess if you only have like a limited color palette, you're going to use the fuck out of it. Like you're going to just <laughs> right. 
go o- go overboard. And the only other notes that I had was that the director of photography, Natasha Brayer, read the script and she had a meeting with him and said that she didn't really like it and she told him what wasn't working for her and he smiled and said, oh, you got the fake script. So I don't know why he <laughs> wrote like a fake version of the script or whatever, but like, I don't know, it's, it's just weird. I heard he doesn't write scripts, that he just writes everything out on cards and he kind of hands out copies of those and he keeps them in his pocket and it's just sort of like it's got the it's in script form you know he, every card has lines of dialogue and direction and everything but he never I to my knowledge he had never really written a script so maybe he did a decoy copy to hand to you know executives or something maybe that makes sense I mean it makes sense in the way that it makes no sense but it makes sense <laughs> last thing I want to say about this movie is that the closing credits set to that Sia song are more beautiful than like 99% of movies that I've ever seen like it's just all the way down to the credits, which I, I'm assuming most people probably don't watch, even though they look beautiful. Like, it's he's so good at like everything visual that even these are just stunning. They're just very unconventional when you think of closing credits, too. Like, they keep you in your seat. Like, I didn't want to change, I didn't want to stop the DVD or the Blu ray because I thought there, you know, maybe I missed something at the very, very, very end of this that like, was going to pop up or anything. But I mean, yeah, it's just, it's really cool how it just transitions to the desert like that and you see her walking from behind and then it's just imagery and then you get to like the glitter falling and all of all, all of that too is just really I, beautiful i would like to give another perspective on that which i agree i thought it was really beautiful and i also kept watching it but also it kind of looks like a karaoke video like when you go out and do karaoke <laughs> But it looks like the nicest, most expensive yeah, karaoke no, nice. video. But the, also, like, it had, like, it says, like, for Abby at the end. Yeah, that's his, that's his wife, yeah. But it's in, like, hot pink in, like, a dumb <laughs> font. You know, like, it's kind of trashy looking at the same time, which I like. But that's, like, but but that's, that's who he is, though. No, I know. He, I like, like turns trashy into sort of wonderful beautiful yeah it's almost like porno in a weird way <laughs> like um yeah like elegant porno man he would make he would shoot the best porn like talking <laughs> about gasper no in love you guys if you want me to start yelling about like, women <laughs> and stuff you like keep going with this sure but like because like i mean that's like the one thing that you can absolutely say about this movie is that the women are objects like they're not people they're not three-dimensional i mean i get no some of the characters in this could be but it's also that way for a reason like he's not doing it in the way that other directors do it he's not making them objects because he doesn't know how to write for women he's making them objects to make up to make a point what is the point though i don't think he makes it well enough for it's us open to, to say interpretation. that but so that's what i'm saying is like he doesn't make any kind of point about feminism or women or beauty he doesn't make any of those points well enough for us to make that argument i don't think i think it's just an overall critique of the fashion world the vapidity of of that i think partially too it's sort of like a in a way it's like looking at horror films from another perspective as well like what's sort of like the generalized you know plot of most horror films oh the girls are in trouble right and they're getting hacked up one by one by the male killer or something and and here you have you know all of the ingredients to a normal horror film you've got the very scary guys you've got the beautiful women you've got this sort of strange like fish out of water story going on and and all of this menace and when the shoe finally drops you know it's it's the girls you know it's the reverse of what usually happens it's the girls killing the girl yeah, but like no, ganging but up like, on her those girls are are doing that because they're the opposite of empowered because they're prisoners 
you know, there's no there's no female empowerment in this. There's the opposite, like so much of the opposite. Yeah, it's complex. <laughs> and that's why that's why I didn't really want to get into it because I would have to watch it a lot more times because I like. Because for me, the movie still is a little bit empty. Like, you have to work pretty hard to have a lot of those thoughts about it. Because I I don't really think it was made for the purpose of, like, making a big comment about the modeling world or about beauty or about superficiality. I kind of just think, at least partly, he was like, this is pretty, you know? Like, because it is. Ultimately, I don't feel like he's making this for us to critique too deep. I think he just wants you to sort of sit back and, and like fall under its spell and try and enjoy what you're looking at and sort of figure out what's going on the best you can and just try and be entertained by it first and foremost. And then like we're doing now, I feel like there is a discussion in there afterwards, but it, yeah, it definitely needs repeat viewings um, to get into it. Yeah, well, that's where I think, like, David Lynch is just better at this, in a way. You know, the last Lynch movie we watched together, we talked about it for two hours and an hour in, and we're kind of done with this one. Not that it's not effective at whatever it was trying to do, but he's no David Lynch. To be fair, I think that we could talk about this movie for a lot longer, but I want to sort of more focus on Keanu, whereas with Wild at Heart, we talked about it so long because Cage is in, like, every scene of that movie. Yeah, yeah And I think there's right. a different level of focus. So, I mean, I agree that, like, I don't want to say he's a better filmmaker. He just makes different kind of movies. I love Wild at Heart and I love Neon Demon. Like, I, I don't want to say one's better than the other. I probably love Wild at Heart more just because it's Cage, you know what I mean? But, like... I, I love both of them. I want to do, because this is Jordan's last Keanu episode, because we're nearing the end, until, you know, he adds a new movie that she's like, oh, I need to be on that. Yeah. I want to do a, a series wrap on Jordan. And I want to point out, without doing the, the full research, I have to say, Jordan probably had the highest success ratio of Keanu movies of any guest, because she started out with Flying, then did Parenthood. Yes. A Walk in the Clouds, which is the weakest of the bunch, Thumbsucker, A Scanner Darkly, The Neon Demon. I mean, for for a guy who's done a lot of iffy to bad movies, for the worst to be A Walk in the Clouds, which is probably just like middle of the road, like you had a really good track record, Jordan. So thank you for joining us for these. Thank you for being there for our shared discovery of flying. Yes. <laughs> And thank you, especially, seriously, genuinely, for, especially early on, for opening up the conversations to not just be about the movies, but about Keanu as an actor and sort of tracking his trajectory. And, you know, like, I think Parenthood, we talked about for like 20 minutes, and then we talked about sort of him as an actor for like 40 minutes. So I think that a lot of what you brought to this was really good. And I think you brought a fresh, unique perspective to Keanu that we didn't have. And it also doesn't hurt that you had six good movies to talk about. <laughs> Thanks, guys. I really liked doing it, and it helped that I didn't have to watch anything that was like Season of the Witch. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I had a, a really good time doing it. Flying is now one of my favorite movies, and I will try to make anybody I come in contact with watch it. <laughs> it's on YouTube, guys. Seriously, watch it. Um, yeah, thanks, guys. I'm looking at our next podcast, which we will have not announced, but we will announce soon-ish. And you're going to be on five episodes, at least for now. I've never heard of three of the things. One of them is sort of a special thing, and then there's one movie that I know. So it's going to be a real difference, I think. I'm in a, I'm in a very similar boat with those movies. 
Which is why I chose what I chose. Any last thoughts about either this movie or Keanu, Jordan? No. Sorry that Keanu didn't turn out for you guys quite how you wanted him to. Well, I think that the fact that we got Flying and Man of Tai Chi, like we saw a lot of bad movies, but we got two movies that I really, really love. Probably some other ones. That also gave me a reason to see Bill and Ted for the first time. Like there were positives. There was just there was just a lot of darkness in here. It does also make me feel happy to be like we're close to the end of Keanu and to hear you guys saying that like it's coming back up because I that didn't happen with Cage. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice. It's nice to be on the upswing. Yeah, it makes it makes me feel happy for him, you know, because like I really liked like his earlier movies that we watched. I I like him. He seems like a nice guy. I think it's cool that you can have a bunch of really bad years as an actor and then you can come back and do well again. Yeah, he's the testament to the American dream. This Canadian man, <laughs> I don't think either of his parents are American, so who knows? But yeah, he is the American dream embodied. Mike, any last thoughts about The Neon Demon? I'm going to watch it again soon. <laughs> I'll probably watch it like in October for my Halloween Oktoberfest 31 Days of Horror thing going on. Uh, that's when I first watched it was last October, October 22nd, 2016. I love it. It's great. I think uh, everyone should check it out. I mean, it's definitely, you know, it's not for everybody. I think it's I think it's more if you like love movies and are into different things and are more open-minded it, it might play better for you but if you're just into you know a casual viewer or only like you know action blockbuster mainstream kind of things it might not be your cup of tea however if it's not if it doesn't sound like your cup of tea i think you should try it anyway it might enlighten you or open a doorway into other types of films and filmmaking um, i guess i just can't say enough about it so check it out and if you can see it on the big screen, go see it on the big screen. I don't know if it's a movie that's really going to be in theaters. I guess probably the Draft House could sort of, if you live in a place with a Draft House, they might show it. But, you know, if you can see it on, like, on the biggest screen possible, because if nothing else, I mean, like we talked about for 47 Ronin, this is also another movie that, like, if you hate this movie, which I don't, I mean, I understand that if you would, but I don't, none of us do, I don't think. If you watch it muted, it's gorgeous. So, you know, it's a very beautiful oh, yeah. movie. Watch it on the biggest screen you can. I would even say, also, if if you don't like what you see, you could just listen to the soundtrack, because that's amazing. So, either way. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> so, for all things Keanu Club, including Jordan's five other episodes, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub or at cageclubpod on Twitter. See everything that we've done, all the other shows, Jordan's appearances on Cage Club, Jordan's appear future appearances on a couple other podcasts that we have not announced yet. Actually, we've already announced Cinemakers on the Whole Truth episode, right? So Jordan will be the second guest. We aren't going to spoil her director yet, but Jordan will be our second guest on Cinemakers, so that's going to come out sometime next year. Lots of fun, free things for you to do. Hey, could you talk about my podcast, too? Oh, also, I forgot. And <laughs> you have a new episode coming out tomorrow as we record this. The 8th and the 22nd of every month is Wistful Thinking, which is a great podcast by Jordan and Kara, who have both been on this show about nostalgia and about things. How do you describe it, Jordan? What's the elevator pitch for your podcast? Uh, on Wistful Thinking, we invite a guest to pick a piece of pop culture from their childhood, and we will all experience it together as adults, and we will talk about it after that. And if nothing else, it has far and away the best art of any of our podcasts. Kara draws stuff every week, and it just it it blows my mind how good this stuff is. So like this, it's a hidden success of the podcast. So go see that art on cageclub.me or facebook.com/cageclub or at cageclubpod on Twitter. I'm Joey Lewandowski, and I'm Mike Manzi, and that was Jordan Poland Clark, and we'll see you next time on Keanu Club. 
Room 214. Gotta be seen.